This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke. Part 3. Section 3. Proportion Not the Cause of Beauty in Animals. That proportion has but a small share in the formation of beauty is full as evident among animals. Here the greatest variety of shapes and dispositions of parts are well fitted to excite this idea. The swan, confessedly a beautiful bird, has a neck longer than the rest of his body, and but a very short tail. Is this a beautiful proportion? We must allow that it is. But then what shall we say to the peacock, who has comparatively but a short neck, with a tail longer than the neck and the rest of the body taken together? How many birds are there that vary infinitely from each of these standards, and from every other which you can fix? With proportions different, and often directly opposite to each other. And yet many of these birds are extremely beautiful. When upon considering them we find nothing in any one part that might determine us, a priori, to say what the others ought to be, nor indeed to guess anything about them but what experience might show to be full of disappointment and mistake. And with regard to the colors either of birds or flowers, for there is something similar in the coloring of both, whether they are considered in their extension or gradation, there is nothing of proportion to be observed. Some are of but one single color, others have all the colors of the rainbow, some are of the primary colors, others are of the mixed. In short, an attentive observer may soon conclude that there is as little of proportion in the coloring as in the shapes of these objects. Turn next to beasts, examine the head of a beautiful horse, find what proportion that bears to his body and to his limbs, and what relation these have to each other. And when you have settled these proportions as a standard of beauty, then take a dog or cat or any other animal, and examine how far the same proportions between their heads and their necks, between those and the body, and so on, are found to hold. I think we may safely say that they differ in every species, yet that there are individuals found in a great many species so differing, that have a very striking beauty. Now, if it be allowed that very different and even contrary forms and dispositions are consistent with beauty, it amounts, I believe, to a concession that no certain measures, operating from a natural principle, are necessary to produce it, at least so far as the brute species is concerned. Section 4. Proportion Not the Cause of Beauty in the Human Species there are some parts of the human body that are observed to hold certain proportions to each other. But before it can be proved that the efficient cause of beauty lies in these, it must be shown that wherever these are found exact, the person to whom they belong is beautiful. I mean in the effect produced on the view, either of any member distinctly considered, or of the whole body together. It must be likewise shown that these parts stand in such a relation to each other that the comparison between them may be easily made, and that the affection of the mind may naturally result from it. 
For my part, I have at several times very carefully examined many of these proportions, and have found them hold very nearly or altogether alike in many subjects, which were not only very different from one another, but where one has been very beautiful and the other very remote from beauty. With regard to the parts which are found so proportioned, they are often so remote from each other in situation, nature, and office, that I cannot see how they admit of any comparison, nor consequently how any effect owing to proportion can result from them. The neck, say they, in beautiful bodies, should measure with the calf of the leg. It should likewise be twice the circumference of the wrist. And an infinity of observations of this kind are to be found in the writings and conversations of many. But what relation has the calf of the leg to the neck, or either of these parts to the wrist? These proportions are certainly to be found in handsome bodies. They are as certainly in ugly ones, as any who will take the pains to try may find. Nay, I do not know, but they may be least perfect in some of the most beautiful. You may assign any proportions you please to every part of the human body, and I undertake that a painter shall religiously observe them all, and notwithstanding produce, if he pleases, a very ugly figure. The same painter shall considerably deviate from these proportions, and produce a very beautiful one. And indeed it may be observed in the masterpieces of the ancient and modern statuary, that several of them differ very widely from the proportions of others, in parts very conspicuous and of great consideration, and that they differ no less from the proportions we find in living men, of forms extremely striking and agreeable. And after all, how are the partisans of proportional beauty agreed amongst themselves about the proportions of the human body? Some hold it to be seven heads, some make it eight, whilst other extend it even to ten, a vast difference in such a small number of divisions. Others take other methods of estimating the proportions, and all with equal success. But are these proportions exactly the same in all handsome men? Or are they at all the proportions found in beautiful women? Nobody will say that they are, yet both sexes are undoubtedly capable of beauty, and the female of the greatest, which advantage, I believe, will hardly be attributed to the superior exactness of proportion in the fair sex. Let us rest a moment on this point, and consider how much difference there is between the measures that prevail in many similar parts of the body in the two sexes, of this single species only. If you assign any determinate proportions to the limbs of a man, and if you limit human beauty to these proportions, when you find a woman who differs in the make and measure of almost every part, you must conclude her not to be beautiful, in spite of the suggestions of your imagination, or, in obedience to your imagination, you must renounce your rules, you must lay by the scale and compass and look out for some other cause of beauty. For if beauty be attached to certain measures which operate from a principle in nature, why should similar parts with different measures of proportion be found to have beauty, and this too in the very same species? But to open our view a little, it is worth observing that almost all animals have parts of very much the same nature, 
and destined merely to the same purposes, a head, neck, body, feet, eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Yet providence, to provide in the best manner for their several wants, and to display the riches of his wisdom and goodness in his creation, has worked out of these few and similar organs and members a diversity hardly short of infinite in their disposition, measures, and relation. But, as we have before observed amidst this infinite diversity, one particular is common to many species. Several of the individuals which compose them are capable of affecting us with a sense of loveliness, and whilst they agree in producing this effect, they differ extremely in the relative measures of those parts which have produced it. These considerations were sufficient to induce me to reject the notion of any particular proportions that operated by nature to produce a pleasing effect. But those who will agree with me in regard to a particular proportion are strongly prepossessed in favor of one more indefinite. They imagine that although beauty in general is annexed to no certain measures common to the several kinds of pleasing plants and animals, yet that there is a certain proportion in each species absolutely essential to the beauty of that particular kind. If we consider the animal world in general, we find beauty confined to no certain measures, but as some peculiar measure and relation of parts is what distinguishes each peculiar class of animals, it must of necessity be that the beautiful in each kind will be found in the measures and proportions of that kind for otherwise it would deviate from its proper species and become in some sort monstrous however no species is so strictly confined to any certain proportions that there is not a considerable variation amongst the individuals and as it has been shown of the human so it may be shown of the brute kinds that beauty is found indifferently in all the proportions which each kind can admit without quitting its common form and it is this idea of a common form that makes the proportion of parts at all regarded and not the operation of any natural cause indeed a little consideration will make it appear that it is not measure but manner that creates all the beauty which belongs to shape. What light do we borrow from these boasted proportions when we study ornamental design? It seems amazing to me that artists, if they were as well convinced as they pretend to be, that proportion is a principal cause of beauty, have not by them at all times accurate measurements of all sorts of beautiful animals to help them to proper proportions, when they would contrive anything elegant, especially as they frequently assert that it is from an observation of the beautiful in nature they direct their practice. I know that it has been said long since, and echoed backward and forward from one writer to another a thousand times, that the proportions of building have been taken from those of the human body. To make this forced analogy complete, they represent a man with his arms raised and extended at full length, and then describe a sort of square as it is formed by passing lines along the extremities of this strange figure. But it appears very clearly to me that the human figure never supplied the architect with any of his ideas, for, in the first place, 
Men are very rarely seen in this strained posture. It is not natural to them, neither is it at all becoming. Secondly, the view of the human figure so disposed does not naturally suggest the idea of a square, but rather of a cross, as that large space between the arms and the ground must be filled with something before it can make anybody think of a square. Thirdly, several buildings are by no means of the form of that particular square, which are notwithstanding planned by the best architects and produce an effect altogether as good and perhaps a better. And certainly nothing could be more unaccountably whimsical than for an architect to model his performance by the human figure, since no two things can have less resemblance or analogy than a man and a house or a temple. Do we need to observe that their purposes are entirely different? What I am apt to suspect is this, that these analogies were devised to give a credit to the works of art, by showing a conformity between them and the noblest works in nature, not that the latter served at all to supply hints for the perfection of the former. And I am the more fully convinced that the patrons of proportion have transferred their artificial ideas to nature, and not borrowed from thence the proportions they use in works of art because in any discussion of this subject they always quit as soon as possible the open field of natural beauties, the animal and vegetable kingdoms, and fortify themselves within the artificial lines and angles of architecture. From there is in mankind an unfortunate propensity to make themselves, their views, and their works the measure of excellence in everything whatsoever. Therefore, having observed that their dwellings were most commodious and firm, when they were thrown into regular figures with parts answerable to each other, they transferred these ideas to their gardens, and turned their trees into pillars, pyramids, and obelisks. They formed their hedges into so many green walls, and fashioned their walks into squares, triangles, and other mathematical figures, with exactness and symmetry, and they thought if they were not imitating, they were at least improving nature and teaching her to know her business. But nature has at last escaped from their discipline and their fetters, and our gardens, if nothing else, declare, we begin to feel, that mathematical ideas are not the true measures of beauty, and surely they are as full as little so in the animal and vegetable world. For is it not extraordinary that in these fine descriptive pieces, these innumerable odes and elegies which are in the mouths of all the world, and many of which have been the entertainment of ages, that in these pieces which describe love with such a passionate energy, and represent its object in such an infinite variety of lights, not one word is said of proportion, if it be what some insisted is, the principal component of beauty, whilst at the same time several other qualities are very frequently and warmly mentioned? But if proportion has not this power, it may appear odd how men came originally to be so prepossessed in its favor. It arose, I imagine, from the fondness I have just mentioned, which men bear so remarkably to their own works and notions. It arose from false reasonings on the effects of the customary figure of animals, 
it arose from the platonic theory of fitness and aptitude for which reason in the next section i shall consider the effects of custom in the figure of animals and afterwards the idea of fitness since if proportion does not operate by a natural power attending some measures it must be either by custom or the idea of utility there is no other way section five proportion further considered if i am not mistaken a great deal of the prejudice in favor of proportion has arisen not so much from the observation of any certain measures found in beautiful bodies as from a wrong idea of the relation which deformity bears to beauty to which it has been considered as the opposite on this principle it was concluded that where the causes of deformity were removed beauty must naturally and necessarily be introduced this i believe is a mistake for deformity is opposed not to beauty but to the complete common form if one of the legs of a man is found shorter than the other the man is deformed because there is something wanting to complete the whole idea we form of a man and this has the same effect as natural faults as maiming and mutilation produce from accidents so if the back be humped the man is deformed because his back has an unusual figure and what carries with it the idea of some disease or misfortune so if a man's neck be considerably longer or shorter than usual we say he is deformed in that part because men are not commonly made in that manner but surely every hour's experience may convince us that a man may have his legs of an equal length and resembling each other in all respects and his neck of a just size and his back quite straight without having at the same time the least perceivable beauty indeed beauty is so far from belonging to the idea of custom that in reality what affects us in that manner is extremely rare and uncommon the beautiful strikes us as much by its novelty as the deformed itself it is thus in those species of animals with which we are acquainted and if one of a new species were represented we should by no means wait until custom had settled an idea of proportion before we decided concerning its beauty or ugliness which shows that the general idea of beauty can be no more owing to customary than to natural proportion deformity arises from the want of the common proportions but the necessary result of their existence in any object is not beauty if we suppose proportion in natural things to be relative to custom and use the nature of use and custom will show that beauty which is a positive and powerful quality cannot result from it we are so wonderfully formed that whilst we are creatures vehemently desirous of novelty we are as strongly attached to habit and custom but it is not the nature of things which hold us by custom to affect us very little whilst we are in possession of them but strongly when they are absent i remember to have frequented a certain place every day for a long time together and i may truly say that so far from finding pleasure in it it was affected with a sort of weariness and disgust i came i went i returned without pleasure 
Yet if by any means I passed by the usual time of my going thither, I was remarkably uneasy, and was not quiet till I had got into my old track. They who use snuff take it almost without being sensible that they take it, and the acute sense of smell is deadened, so as to feel hardly anything from so sharp a stimulus. Yet deprive the snuff-taker of, of his box, and he is the most uneasy mortal in the world. Indeed, so far are use and habit from being causes of pleasure merely as such, that the effect of constant use is to make all things of whatever kind entirely unaffecting. For as use at last takes off the painful effect of many things, it reduces the pleasurable effect in others in the same manner, and brings both to a sort of mediocrity and indifference. Very justly is use called a second nature, and our natural and common state is one of absolute indifference, equally prepared for pain or pleasure. But when we are thrown out of this state, or deprived of anything requisite to maintain us in it, when this chance does not happen by pleasure from some mechanical cause, we are always hurt. It is so with the second nature, custom, in all things which relate to it. Thus the want of the usual proportions in men and other animals is sure to disgust, though their presence is by no means any cause of real pleasure. It is true that the proportions laid down as causes of beauty in the human body are frequently found in beautiful ones, because they are generally found in all mankind. But if it can be shown, too, that they are found without beauty, and that beauty frequently exists without them, and that this beauty where it exists always can be assigned to other less equivocal causes, it will naturally lead us to conclude that proportion and beauty are not ideas of the same nature. The true opposite to beauty is not disproportion or deformity, but ugliness. And as it proceeds from causes opposite to those of positive beauty, we cannot consider it until we come to treat of that. Between beauty and ugliness, there is a sort of mediocrity, in which the assigned proportions are most commonly found, but this has no effect upon the passions. Section 6. Fitness not the cause of beauty. It is said that the idea of utility, or of a part's being well adapted to answer its end, is the cause of beauty, or indeed beauty itself. If it were not for this opinion, it had been impossible for the doctrine of proportion to have held its ground very long. The world would be soon weary of hearing of measures which related to nothing, either of a natural principle or of a fitness to answer some end. The idea which mankind most commonly conceive of proportion is the suitableness of means to certain ends, and, where this is not the question, very seldom trouble themselves about the effect of different measures of things. Therefore it was necessary for this theory to insist that not only artificial but natural objects took their beauty from the fitness of the parts for their several purposes. But in framing this theory, I am apprehensive that experience was not sufficiently consulted. For on that principle, the wedge-like snout of a swine, with its tough cartilage at the end, the little sunk eyes, 
and the whole make of the head, so well adapted to its offices of digging and rooting, would be extremely beautiful. The great bag hanging to the bill of a pelican, a thing highly useful to this animal, would be likewise as beautiful in our eyes. The hedgehog, so well secured against all assaults by his prickly hide, and the porcupine with his missile quills, would be then considered as creatures of no small elegance. There are few animals whose parts are better contrived than those of a monkey. He has the hands of a man, joined to the springy limbs of a beast. He is admirably calculated for running, leaping, grappling, and climbing. And yet there are few animals which seem to have less beauty in the eyes of all mankind. I need say little on the trunk of the elephant, of such various usefulness, and which is so far from contributing to his beauty. How well fitted is the wolf for running and leaping! How admirably is the lion armed for battle! But will anyone therefore call the elephant, the wolf, and the lion beautiful animals? I believe nobody will think the form of a man's leg so well adapted to running as those of a horse, a dog, a deer, and several other creatures. At least they have not that appearance. Yet, I believe, a well-fashioned human leg will be allowed to far exceed all these in beauty. If the fitness of parts was what constituted the loveliness of their form, the actual employment of them would undoubtedly much augment it. But this, though it is sometimes so upon another principle, is far from being always the case. A bird on the wing is not so beautiful as when it is perched. Nay, there are several of the domestic fowls which are seldom seen to fly, and which are nothing the less beautiful on that account. Yet birds are so extremely different in their form from the beast and human kinds that you cannot, on the principle of fitness, allow them anything agreeable, but in consideration of their parts being designed for quite other purposes. I never in my life chanced to see a peacock fly, and yet before, very long before I considered any aptitude in his form for the aerial life, I was struck with the extreme beauty which raises that bird above many of the best flying fowls in the world, though, for anything I saw, his way of living was much like that of the swine, which fed in the farmyard along with him. The same may be said of cocks, hens, and the like. They are of the flying kind and figure, in their manner of moving not very different from men and beasts. To leave these foreign examples, if beauty in our own species was annexed to use, men would be much more lovely than women, and strength and agility would be considered as the only beauties. But to call strength by the name of beauty, to have but one denomination for the qualities of a Venus and Hercules, so totally different in almost all respects, is surely a strange confusion of ideas or abuse of words. The cause of this confusion, I imagine, proceeds from our frequently perceiving the parts of the human and other animal bodies to be at once very beautiful and very well adapted to their purposes. And we are deceived by a sophism 
which makes us take that for a cause which is only a concomitant. This is the sophism of the fly, who imagined he raised a great dust because he stood upon the chariot that really raised it. The stomach, the lungs, the liver, as well as other parts, are incomparably well adapted to their purposes, yet they are far from having any beauty. Again, many things are very beautiful, in which it is impossible to discern any idea of use, and I appeal to the first and most natural feelings of mankind, whether on beholding a beautiful eye or a well-fashioned mouth, or a well-turned leg, any ideas of their being well-fitted for seeing, eating, or running, ever present themselves. What idea of use is it that flowers excite the most beautiful part of the vegetable world? It is true that the infinitely wise and good creator has, of his bounty, frequently joined beauty to those things which he has made useful to us, but this does not prove that an idea of use and beauty are the same thing, or that they are any way dependent on each other. 